0: Good morning, Forest View. (laughs) Thank you. As Nat said, I am Craig. Have been for my whole life. Um, And I am on the teaching team, and it is nice to be in here. I wish it was a little warmer, (laughs) but hopefully. I do that with one. I do that with one. I have to keep switching, right? That's all. i do. Thanks for the tip. That's good. Um, I have been at Forest View here for a, a long time, as this can maybe testify to. But um, even if you've been here a short time, in fact, even if this is your very first time, you have already heard, I think three times now, I might be the fourth, um, a sentence that perhaps you are very familiar with. It's at Force View. We exist to be a community where people meet Jesus. All right, have you heard that before? Yes. yes, a few times, right? That's what we're all about here. We exist to be a people who meet Jesus and become more like Him. It's it's that kind of that, that simple. Well, during the season of Lent, we decided that we wanted to really get to meet Jesus again, as if we don't want to do that every single week. Uh, But we wanted to meet Jesus through this Lenten season, through his I am statements. In the Gospel of John, Jesus time and time again identifies himself, introduces himself to us through these statements. I am. And so we've called this introductions and invitations because not only does Jesus introduce himself, he inevitably also calls us into something. It's an invitation. So we thought that's kind of a good way to spend Lent, getting to meet Jesus in an attempt with God's help to become more like him. Well, last week... We heard Jesus identify himself as the bread of life, right? Remember that? I know it's a long time ago, a whole week. (laughs) Um, So let's see, Forest View, where Jesus is going to take us today and how he's going to introduce himself. Um, As we catch up to Jesus today, it is actually the Feast of the Tabernacles. All right, That's where he is. Attending the Feast of the Tabernacles, somewhat reluctantly, but... He gets there eventually. Now, this is arguably the most fun festival of all the Jewish festivals, and there are a bunch of them. Um, it's a full week long. All right? Happens in middle of October, so kind of like our Thanksgiving. In fact, that's a big part of it. It is Thanksgiving for the harvest and everything that comes in. But it's also a time to remember, all right, the Feast of Tabernacles is a time where they recall how God rescued them from slavery in Egypt, and then led them through the wilderness towards the promised land. Now, the wilderness had no best westerns or anything like that. It was just simply a wilderness. And so what they had to do there was live out of a tent, right? And so what they would do in the Feast of Tabernacles, sometimes called the Feast of Booze, is they would build these little huts. All right, And so they would essentially go camping. (laughs) No wonder it was fun, right? They'd build these booths, and there were some pretty strict um, regulations around how they were built. I mean, they they couldn't be permanent. They were constructed so they could be taken down, just like the children of Israel had to do day and day as they wandered through this wilderness. But they also, as they were making these booths with palm leaves and stuff like that, had to make sure that the roof had room that, so you could see the night sky, all right? So you could see the, the darkness and the, and the heavens and everything else like that. So it couldn't be closed in completely, got that? It had to be sort of open like that. Um, because during the Feast of Tabernacles, that night sky was not gonna stay dark for long. Because for every night, seven days long, a party would begin all right, every night, there would be in the temple courts these four huge bowls, huge candles, if you will, massive ones. And every night, four youths, I can't even say that word, four young kids, right, guys, they would uh, bring up 15 gallons of oil, all right, so that's a fair little, up these ladders, now you get the idea, this is a big booth, a a big um, bowl, up high, and they would pour these bowls, these oil, this oil, whew, pour the oil into the bowls, and then they would light the wick, right? Four of these things up high. It was said the light was so bright that there wasn't a courtyard in all of Jerusalem that wasn't illuminated, right? These lights reached everywhere. Um, and that's when the party would really begin, would really begin. Uh, Even like the most pious of the priests would um, dance and go crazy. They'd have these torches and dance with the torches. In fact, there were even records of some priests being able to juggle their torches. The record being, I hear, eight torches that didn't touch the ground as he was juggling. Dancing, singing, the band was playing, the people were all in the courtyards. It was a party big time and they would... (laughs) This party would last all night long until dawn came around. Because you see, for the Israelites, light was a really big part of their history. It was an important part of their story. And so a festival dedicated to this, the light blazing through the darkness was really significant for them because it was in the wilderness that God appeared as a pillar of fire at night and would lead them, a cloud in the day to give them coolness, a pillar of fire at night to lead them and provide warmth. And so they could travel, night, day, didn't matter. They could travel through this wilderness. On the first day of creation, In the darkness, when the whole of the firmament was wasn't firmament, the whole of creation was chaos and darkness. God says, "What? Let there be light," and there's light. In the Psalms, Psalm 27, David, recalling how the Lord had delivered him, reflects and said, "The Lord is my light and my salvation; of whom shall I be afraid?" Who who am I going to fear if that's the case, right? This idea of light permeates all the way through. Micah writes, a prophet, he says, when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light for me. And, And one of the most beautiful passages, I think, is in Psalm 44, as the psalmist is reflecting on the military exploits of his ancestors, and he, and he says to God, he says, you know, it was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face. I love that little, I love that little phrase, and the light of your face, for you love them. When they celebrate light, they recall all the way through their history how God has been a light to them and has rescued them. It's why the booths had to have cracks in their roofs, right? Between the branches so that the light could get through. One scholar put it this way. Light is Yahweh in action. I like that. Light is Yahweh in action. So, the Feast of Tabernacles. It's against this backdrop that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light of the world, he says. I am the pillar of fire, leading you through the wilderness to the promised land. I am that creative force who will banish the darkness. I'm the one who casts out fear. So you have nothing to be afraid of. The one who brings you victory. Yes, I'm the light on God's face, the smile of God, the love of God. It's me, I, and not these Bowls of fire that you have to light up nightly. I am the light, the one offering you the light of life. Not just for the corners of Jerusalem, but for the whole world. I am the light of the world, he says. All your experience of life, light, all through your sacred history, I am everything you've thought of about light, I am. I am the light of the world. I am Yahweh in action. And with that, we come to the gospel story that we heard a little earlier. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 9. Jesus comes upon a man who is born blind. It starts in verse 1. And as we heard, the disciples who were ever kind of the epitome of empathy look at him and say, who sinned? Him or his mom and dad? I mean, it, it, it's almost hard to imagine someone actually saying that, right? I mean, maybe you think it. I wonder what they did. I wonder what food they ate, right? But you don't say it, right? It's a stunningly insensitive thing to say, even to think, right? This man, born blind, now begging, forced to live on the outskirts of town. And they say, I wonder what he did wrong. Or was it his parents? it really does betray this kind of mechanistic worldview, right? A cause and effect that I, I actually think is pretty prevalent even today, right? A bad thing happens and, and we say, you know, what did you do wrong? Who sinned? Right? If you're down on your luck, what did you do, what did you do to deserve that? Right? It, it, it's, it's actually a, a very convenient system, right? Convenient way of thinking, especially for those of us who are #hashtag blessed, right? Right? It's it's one of those systems that really does affirm you if you're up, and explain away those who are down. The disciples had it all worked out, right? They were the good guys. They were God's favorites. The blind man or or, or his parents, who can say, you know, we got to be humble about this. Uh, they were the bad guys who God had somehow punished. This gave them permission to even as he's standing there, walk around him, right? Hmm, I wonder who sinned, him or his father, and talk about him as if he's not even there. He's the invisible one. What this, in effect, did was create this kind of self-affirming, two-tiered system, right? Who's in, who's out. More than that, it, it just gave us some really easy answers, right? Um, you knew exactly what was happening, right? Even more dangerously, they attached religion to it, and that's where it really became ugly to justify the position. They were the good guys because, well... Obviously, they weren't blind. <laughs> and, and, and this guy is blind, so therefore he must have sinned. I'm blessed, so I must be, I'd say righteous, but I'm too humble to say it. <laughs> right? It blames the loser and exalts the winner. That, you got what I'm saying? It's that sort of system. That's, that's, that's what was operating in their mind. That's, that's their way of thinking, their modus operandi, if you will. Right, and I'm convinced it's rampant today just as much as in Jesus' times. Right, you know, you hear it say, "He got what he deserved," right? Or this one: "God helps those who help themselves." Right, right. Or, I don't know what you did, but you must have done something. Right? Have you checked your diet? Have you done right? Have you exercised enough? People don't just get cancer for no reason. Or maybe if you just pray harder or if you go to church more or you shovel your neighbor's drive... Actually, I, I like that last one. <laughs> um, if, you do, if you do certain things, God's going to look favorably on you, right? And if you don't, well, just duck a little bit, <laughs> right? Um, this is particularly popular with those people on the winning side, not so popular with those people who are kind of the losers. But here's the thing. It's downright ugly. It's this way of thinking that fuels racism, classism, all sorts of systemic injustices, right? More than that, on a personal level, it creates this critical spirit, always looking for, what's the reason this happened? Where's Where's the sin, right? What did they do? And it's even hard on us because even as we're pointing and looking at someone else, deep down we know that, you know, if people just knew us, they might find out that it's not all roses with me either. It's mean, it's elitist, and Jesus wants nothing to do with it. So when the disciples asked who sinned, him or his parents, Jesus says, I choose see none of the above. Right? He says, Neither of these ones people sinned. Why did this happen? Well, it, like all things, good or bad, it happened so that God could do good things could do his work in people's lives. That's why things happen. Because whether it's, you know, as we sang, the highlands or the lowlands, God is there. God is doing his good work. So Jesus looks at him and heals him. He bends down. I, I even like that gesture, right? Even as all the disciples are walking around this invisible man, Jesus bends down it says and he mixes some of his own spit with the dirt to make a paste and he anoints his eyes he puts it on the man's eyes and then tells him to go out to the nearest pool and wash it off and sure enough the man goes to the pool washes it off and can see It's an unheard of event. A man who was born blind can now see. And if the story ended there, it would just be one of those good, feel good kind of nice moments, right? A really good story. But of course it doesn't. Because word of this healing soon reaches the Pharisees, the religious people of the day, kind of the champions of the, the blame game, if you will, right? Oh, did I mention that Jesus did all of this healing on the Sabbath? Of course he did. That's what he likes to do. And yes, you guessed it, that was a problem. Because you see, the law says you can save a person if they're in danger of dying on the Sabbath, right? If their life is threatened, you can save them on the Sabbath. But this man was just blind. His life wasn't threatened, so healing him on the Sabbath wasn't permitted. And yes, you were permitted to apply ointment on the Sabbath, but you weren't permitted to make the ointment, right? And perish the thought that you would add your own spit to the ointment on the Sabbath, All right? Those things had to wait till tomorrow. So what does Jesus do? Well, he makes paste with his own spit, puts him, anoints the man's eyes, and heals him on the Sabbath. And that is a problem for the Pharisees. Because if the disciples, who were, you know, if it was disciples who were wondering who sinned, the Pharisees absolutely knew who the sinner was in this one, right? And so what happens next in the rest of the chapter is actually kind of comical. It's actually funny because um, the Pharisees refuse to believe that this guy's actually been healed, right? They, They say... That's not the same guy who was sitting at the, at the gate. That's not the same guy. They ask his neighbors, was this, I'm pretty sure that's the same guy. I can't be sure that he was here, but that, that yeah, that was the guy. Hmm. So then they go and talk to the man himself. Was this you? Yeah, that was me. I was blind from birth and now I can see. Huh. Can't be true. So they talk to his parents and interview them. Was that really your son? Yes, that was your son. That was our son. And yes, he was blind at birth. Now we can see. So they go back to the man again and say, really, honest? You're not just trying to trick us? You were blind and now you can see? Yeah, I keep telling you this. It's rather crazy. They won't believe, catch this, they won't believe a healing is possible because Jesus broke the Sabbath, which means he's a bad man, and of course, God won't listen to the prayers of bad men, so the blind man can't be healed, even though he is, which means he mustn't be the man who is blind, but he is. The whole thing gives him a headache, and so they excommunicate. The poor guy, the blind man who can now see, is kicked out and excommunicated. It's funny the things we do, to preserve our systems, right? Systems that, tell, systems that tell us who's in and who's out. Right? We'll do anything to protect them because so much of who, we're, who we are is wrapped up in those systems, right? They define us. They tell us that we're doing a good job and in fact better than that person over there. The crazy part is that this story is filled with people who are blind. disciples, the Pharisees. (laughs) And the one person who is actually physically blind is the one who leaves this story able to see. The other two groups have no idea that they're blind. That's because their systems keep on affirming that they're right. And so Jesus, the light of the world, comes to them with a gift. He says, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Hmm. He came in for a purpose. He came in to point out our blindness. This is the way the message translates it. I came into the world, says Jesus, to bring everything into the clear light of day, making all the distinctions clear so that those of you, so that those who have never seen will see, and those who have made a great pretense of seeing will be exposed as blind. That's the judgment, this exposure of our blindness. Jesus heals the man who is blind and reveals the blindness of those who think they can see. And both of these are gifts because wherever there is darkness, right? Wherever there is darkness, the light of the world is always at work. Wherever there is darkness, the light of the world Is always at work. Hmm. Have you ever noticed that it's only when you step into the light that you can actually see like your shadows? Right? And the brighter the light, the clearer your shadow. That's what Jesus kind of does for us. The light of the world reveals our shadows. It's it's kind of a tough thing because most of us try to hide our shadows, right? we've actually gotten pretty good at it, especially in the physical world, but I think just as much in the, in the spatial world. I mean, we have concealer, we have you know, uh, the right lighting. I make sure that I have the right lighting, and I decided I thought look, I look good in blue today, so I made sure that I thought it brings out my eyes. Right? We do... Yeah, you probably won't notice that I'm old and wrinkly, right? Probably, right? Um, we do whatever we can to sort of hide our shadows. And we do the same thing with our rest of our life, too, right? Um, So when we say we want to be a community that meets Jesus, we need to be prepared for some serious shadow work happening, because Jesus is going to reveal our biases and our critical spirits. He's going to work to unearth some of our unjust systems He's going to expose our blindness and apathies. Hmm. Because if the truth sets us free, there's a pretty good chance that it will first make us miserable. <laughs> right? It's kind of the gift of God to expose our shadows. It's why it's tempting to, in the, under the light of Jesus, to build our little hut and build it in such a way that the light can't come through because it's safe, our blemishes are hidden, and we can go on with our, with our life. But here's the thing. The truth will set us free if we can handle the truth. Because... even as we learn that the light of the world exposes our shadows we at the very same time are confronted by god's grace right because in spite of what the pharisees think and what the disciples were trying to argue for god doesn't love us because we're good god loves us because god is good right? That's the grace of God in action. And it's one of those things that we can never really come fully to grips with until we start to recognize our imperfections. God loves us, shadows and all, just like God loves the person beside you with all their blemishes that we're all too quick to see, And whose shadows are all too obvious. And when that truth actually settles, we have this wonderful blending of truth and grace. Because no longer do we have to pretend that we've got it all together, right? No longer do we have to hide our shadows. No longer are we desperate to find the shadows of others in order to sort of justify our existence and and place ourselves on the pecking order. No. Grace is is the order of God's kingdom. That's how God has designed us to work, when we're at our best, graciously living in grace. When that happens, we are free to live in truth and we're free to live life in grace. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. That's the truth bit, but we'll have the light of life. That's grace, the light of the world, revealing our shadows, healing our blindness, and leading us into the light of life. And with that, the light of the world invites us to this feast. It's a little more modest than the Feast of Tabernacles. There are no ladders, us climbing like climbing up to light bowls or whatever. But the invitation is kind of the same. It's: "Come, eat, remember and give thanks. Taste and see that the Lord is good. As we take these, we remember that God showed His love for us while we were still sinners, right? Well, we still had all the shadows showing. It wasn't once we got ourselves cleaned up or put on the concealer that God loved us. No, God loved us regardless, right? It had nothing to do with whether we were this or that. God just loved us. And to show that love, Christ, the light of the world, died for us, revealing our shadows healing our blindness and embodying God's love for us. So let me invite you to participate in this wonderful feast, a feast of truth and grace. Here's what we're gonna do. We will have two stations here, two stations at the back and I understand so the inner aisles will move towards the front, the outer aisles can go to the back and you'll pick up your emblems and return to your seats. And we'll eat together. As you return to your seats, my invitation would be to spend some time reflecting on that idea of, you know, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Not because of anything we've done, but because of who God is, the light of the world. So let me pray, then we'll eat. Father, we confess to you that, um, I mean, we know, we know our blemishes, we know our shadows. We confess that we often try to hide them or deny them, sometimes we're even defeated by them. But this day, at this moment, as we take these emblems in our hands, we remember that you loved us so much that you gave your life for us. We remember that you are truly good and that you delight in us. The smile, the light of your face, is for us just because you made us and love us redeem us. So we take these emblems into our hands, remembering your love, remembering the sacrifice, remembering the ways that you showed us your love. And we confess, and we embrace again your forgiveness, and your embrace, your love for us. Through your spirit, teach us to taste and see that you are truly good. We pray in the name of Jesus, the light of the world. Amen.